Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will look at the uh, the final third, the the end of a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Um, we are moving quickly along with uh, the works of of Mark Twain. This doesn't quite get us halfway there, but it's it's at least halfway through like the novels. And, and the major major works. We got Joan of Arc um, after this, probably four episodes on his Joan of Arc uh, novel slash kind of creative nonfiction work. Then we'll, we'll jump into, I think, his other travel logs. That's, that'll be the next thing coming up. Um, so finish up with what he has to say about Europe anyways, and, until we get to the short stories and, and short writings. So um, yeah, let's let's finish it up. Plot-wise, let's let's start with the plot, and then I really wanted to talk about technology and and slavery and and, and a few things like that. Um, so where we ended up last time, uh, uh, the Yankee and King Arthur were were going incognito, exploring the the countryside. Um, and that is when they, um, so this allows us to get a window into aspects of, of society and more like, I think the limits of reform that we see. Remember up to this point are the Yankee, I guess I didn't say this too explicitly before, but um, the Yankees reforms were always covert. He was like training a subset of people, a small group of people to be modern, the mines are underground. So most of the society is not really exposed to the reform. So he's, it's, he, he doesn't feel empowered to kind of do that yet. He's just planting the seeds for, for his reforms. But we still are able to have the contrast between his own worldview, his vision, his plan for the future, and the realities of the society around him. Um, sixth century England. Um, so the incognito stuff just allows to get a little more aspects of society that maybe we wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. Uh, it also allows him to sort of recreate a story, essentially a story from the Prince and the Pauper. And in the, in the Prince and the Pauper, uh, King Edward is essentially kidnapped, forced to fight for his, for his freedom. Here we have the King and, and the Yankee becoming slaves and 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 then having to be rescued but i think one of the key chapters in this section of the where they're they're kind of going undercover is called sixth century political economy um and this is really about the difficulty of 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 getting these people to understand like basic economics, if you want to call it that, where uh, the Yankees trying to explain how wages work and how wages really count when juxtaposed purchasing power. And yet most people just can't see beyond actual wages. So he's trying to explain how in some areas they're, you know, they might be paid more, but they're, but the cost of goods are, they might be paid double, but the cost of goods are more. So they're not really receiving double the pay. He's trying to explain this to them, and they're just not really getting it. So he ends up having to give up on that uh, that aspect of it, of really trying to... Um, he, he tries to explain, but it's just the limits of education of, of the populations, I, I suppose, or the importance of like vernacular, everyday economic exchanges. 
Um, but it's not, you know, it's it's just another chance for Mark Twain to, to create kind of a humorous story within this, this broader tale. Things kind of get dramatic when the Yankee and the King are sold as slaves. Um, and... And there's a couple key points here. One, one of course, is the more humorous aspect is that the, the Yankee gets sold for, I think it's $22, which is an incredible amount of money for a slave when you compare it to the daily wages. I don't know how much uh, Mark Twain was really thinking about it. He said before the daily wages for a worker was like one penny in this area. And so to buy a slave for $22 would be for 2,000 days. So are you getting eight years out of a slave? And that's, you You presumably would want to get more labor from a slave before they die, right? And you got to compute the life expectancy of slaves and all that, that kinds of things and, and to the value added because, you know, it's a, it's a long-term investment. I, you know, I don't know if the math works out, but the point is he's valued as, as much higher as uh, with his knowledge and, and better work than the king. And the king is actually given... Uh, along with as a, with a buy one get one free kind of deal, um, I'll, I'll come back to slavery a little bit because that's uh, somehow I want to get to talking about technology um, there. But the the other important thing here is that the king turn changes his opinion on slavery because we already know the Yankee is against slavery. He's a Yankee, of course, and he's from post Civil War America, and so of course he's going to be against slavery. But the king's not, and the king just sees this as the way of the world. But once he experiences time as a slave, he talks about, he thinks about maybe making a systemic change. Now, this contrast with The Prince and the Pauper is significant because, as I complained in that book, The Prince of the Pauper is only capable of kind of looking at these things personally. It's, it's more like an undercover boss kind of situation where the, the boss sees what it's like in the, in the shoes of one of his employees and then decides to help that employee. He can't really, really liberate the, the working class that hires him. He could promote one of them, but someone else is just going to get that shitty job that he promoted someone out of in the future. So it's, it's an end of, you know, you can help the individuals. It's like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge too is the same, same kind of thing. You know, uh, presumably Ebenezer Scrooge is still making money through usury and rent and being a landlord and all that, but Bob Cratchit gets a higher paycheck and, and tiny Tim's going to live. It's, is that really the, the solution? I, I'm clearly not. But in this story, we have the king actually committing himself to a more radical reform. So, but eventually they're liberated by Lancelot's knights. And there's a, a little action scene where they're freed from being slaves. And then this gets us to the climax of the novel. Chapter 39, the Yankees fights, fight with the knights. Which is all set up as a, a, um, a tournament in which uh, the knights... And the Yankee are going to essentially um, battle it out. Uh, he's afraid for his life. There's a good chance he's going to die. But he is able to defeat the knights and several of them, right, using revolvers. So he uses modern technology to defeat the knights. And this is symbolic of him defeating, uh, essentially on the battlefield, the principle, the concept of knight errantry, which was something he's been opposed to throughout the novel, something he sees as really holding back, essentially it's aristocracy, right? Or, or the, the, the entrenched class structure of, of medieval world, the thing that's really going to limit. There, this is actually quite a Marxist take almost on how civilizations work in that you have class struggle and you have a ruling class and a, and a working class 
and that's defining history and only by like you can't really move beyond that that system unless you dislodge that class that has power in the old system right they're going to defend it to the last breath and that's what happens in revolutions is usually it's the last stand of some class whether it's the samurai in japan or the landlords in russia or you know the slave holding class in america right so i think mark twain is actually quite astute about the importance of class power in in maintaining a system but anyways where was i so he defeats knight errantry and then we jump to a chapter called three years later where he just basically comes out and unleashes all his reforms on society he's like um class that that class that's been holding us back has been destroyed now arthur as king it's really kind of reminds me of of the japanese meiji restoration right where you got certain reforms and then you got to defeat the samurai class and the emperor takes a symbolic lead of uh of of society and but really it's this new uh technocratic class right that's that's in charge and anyways this is all emphasized in the chapter wrote he writes uh when I broke the back of night errantry that time, I no longer felt obliged to work in secret. So the very next day, I exposed my hidden schools, my mines, the vast system of clandestine factories and workshops to the astonished world. That is to say, I exposed the 19th century to the inspection of the 6th. Well, it's always a good plan to follow up and advantage promptly. The knights were temporarily down, but I would keep them so. But if I were to keep them so, I must simply paralyze them. Nothing short of that would answer. You see, I was bluffing the last time in the field. It would be natural for them to work around that conclusion if I gave them a chance. So I must not give them time if I didn't. I renewed my challenge engraved on the brass, posted up where any priest could, could read to them. I also kept it standing in the advertising column in the paper. I not only renewed it, but added to its proportions. I said, name the day and I'll take 50 assistants and stand them up against the mass chivalry of the whole earth and destroy it, end quote. Now that's foreshadowing the, the final pages of the, of the novel. But he repeats here the importance of keeping down this class, of suppressing this class. And then he goes into detail about the reforms. End slavery, all people equal before the law, equal taxation, modern technologies, rail lines. Um, we already saw knights on... on bicycles there's there's good like imagery here that's really nice um talks about political reforms forming a republic even though you still have king arthur there's essentially i guess um uh, i don't know how that works the uh, the idea of a republic um after king arthur becomes more symbolic i suppose um uh, a modern communication system all these things now what happens then with all this revelation is in the church gets involved and puts him under interdict and this gives the knights the chance to make good on that that challenge that that uh hank the the yankee makes in the newspaper saying me and 50 men will stand up against all of, of chivalry and they basically use the interdict as the excuse to challenge them to do it um and then we get a war and what i found interesting about this war um, we kind of have two battle, two one war is kind of discussed more in the abstract in the background, and then we have a very intimate battle in which the Yankee and his fifty men are doing are actually fighting the whole of of European chivalry, or at least of English chivalry. But the chapter forty two, which is just called war, is in a sense like 
an unavoidable conflict. It's like back to the Lancelot, Guinevere, like King Arthur has to die. The stuff that happens in legend has to happen again. And, and from a science fiction standpoint, that's interesting um, because, you know, how do you explain the mythology of, of King Arthur in this timeline? How do you explain the, the fact that this technology doesn't survive? Now, that's not really Mark Twain's point of view, but someone who has read a lot of science fiction is going to have these questions like, how is it that this technology doesn't survive, that uh, it gets forgotten, that this event just becomes myth? If King Arthur was real, why is it just myth? All this stuff that's going to bother someone who's watched too much Star Trek. But it could almost be explained in this way, that the, the legend is a reflection of this story. It just gets mythologized because of the, the succeeding events, the triumph of, of reaction and, and conservatism, which we, we don't really see happen. Uh, we can kind of imagine it happens. Um, Merlin is maybe the instigator of it by putting to, to sleep the Yankee, making him sleep for 600 or 1300 years. But also we have the, the victory in England of chivalry. So what, so this leads us to our last chapter in which basically they hide out in Merlin's cave and set up bombs, destructive like ex devices that are gonna explode everywhere. So that destroys a lot of the infrastructure that he's built up and electric fences and all these things. And then he's setting up his final defense. It's like Shirayama or something, like, like the last stand of the samurai kind of thing, but inverted here. Here you have the, the, the minority is the moderns, the 19th century people, and, and the, the Yankee and the people he's trained with modern weaponry and modern technology, fully schooled, versus, I think it's at one point it's mentioned, 30,000 knights. And in the battle, the, uh, all the knights are killed um, and so they're victorious in a way. And at the end, we get this proclamation um, from Merlin's cave where kind of the Republic is proclaimed after the death of, of, of King Arthur. Um, oh, that's before the battle. So that's when they move to the cave, he pronounces, let it be known unto all whereby the king, whereas the king has died and left no heir, it's become my duty to continue the executive authority vested in me until government shall have been ex created and set in motion. The monarchy has lapsed. It no longer exists. By consequence, all political power is reverted to its original source, the people of the nation. With the monarchy, its several adjuncts died also. Wherefore, there is no longer nobility, no longer a privileged class, no longer an established church. All men are become exactly equal. They are upon one common level and religion is freed. A republic is hereby proclaimed, end quote. Now, this is followed by the battle in which all the knights are killed. And there's there, literally the final images of this book then are is this highly technocratic enclave in which the Yankee, his 50 guys, Merlin is, is on their side because I guess his affiliation with King Arthur declaring a republic in name only that exists doesn't exist in the field anymore because the knights control that but then kind of a mutually assured destruction battle and with both sides are devastated and literally he's like trapped by the bodies of 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 the knights of these 30,000 knights who die in this battle because of the overwhelming technological superiority of the yankee and his, his 50 men but it does explain how this could be this works in a science fiction sense where it, it could be that history has forgotten this incident and 
why we forget King Arthur because the whole class of knights, everyone around King Arthur, everyone who would have known him personally died on the, on the battlefield, right? The last thing Merlin does is, is or the last thing we see Merlin do in the story is uh, put him to sleep. This is a postscript by one of the bosses, by uh, the Yankees' aides, Clarence, uh, who explains what happens. Um, in fact, you have poison air flooding the cave from the, the explosions and the, the chemicals and things from the battle. Um, and and we get the theme of the of the story, Merlin saying, "Ye were conquerors, ye are conquered. The others are perishing. You also, you shall die in this place. Everyone, except him, he sleepeth now. And so, sleep thirteen centuries. I am Merlin." End quote. So the theme being, you're conquered, you're defeated by your own triumph, your own success. Um, the final scene is back to the frame story. The final, we, we get back to, remember this was a frame story. We had someone who found this manuscript and this sleeping guy and he wakes up. He's there when the, the Yankee wakes up from this long sleep and he just right away dies. He doesn't even get to say his last thing. His last thoughts are about battle and, and the, bat, the, the, the basically reliving the final moments of, of his life in the sixth century. And then the story ends. That's all we, we get. So that's the plot of the rest of the novel. I think it's really a, a pretty solid book. It's, I think it's one of its best. Um, and certainly it should be uh, one you read. But I, want, I took some notes about, about technology and, and some other related issues that I want to discuss as a way of kind of closing up this book. Because it is such a major theme of the story. So... Um, So let, let's, let's talk about slavery here. Um, he writes, The repulsive feature of slavery is the thing, not its name. One need but to hear an aristocrat speak of the classes which are below him to recognize, and in but indifferently modified measure, the very air and tone of the actual slaveholder. And behind the, these are the slaveholder's spirit, the slaveholder's blunted feelings. These are the result of the same thing. In both cases, the possessor's old and inbred custom of regarding himself as a superior being. So he's giving that trans-historical definition of slavery here, um, right? And, and I think slavery is not something that Mark Twain can get out of his mind. It's there in Tom Sawyer. It's there in Huckleberry Finn. It's there in Prince and the Pauper. It's there here. It's there in Puttenham Wilson. It's there constantly. Um, and, and as is power, as is power, something else he's constantly obsessed with. Um, now, technology here is also put in a trans-historical lens, right? Because we have his technology being taken out of the context where we're used to seeing it, 19th century. Same thing with slavery. We're used to seeing slavery in the 19th century America. We put it then in a different context. We put it in 6th century, and we see either it's functioning the same or it's functioning differently. He's kind of suggesting here slavery functions at its moral level the same. Okay, now that, that could be up for debate. I know people discuss differences in slavery across time, and I think historians are often very interested in those differences, and even moral differences of slavery in, in how it's perceived and understood by people, right? But still, there's something brutal and degrading about slavery in any context, right? We, we, we acknowledge this, and it's just like Twain is doing here. But what about technology? 
do technologies in the modern or medieval always have the same potentialities? I mean, that's what Hank wants. That's what the Yankee wants. The Yankee is in his head saying technology is just technology. It doesn't matter its social context. It can do the same thing. A telegraph works just as well in the 6th century as it works now. Obviously, this guy doesn't respect the prime directive. Um, so Mark Twain does seem to give technology a great bit of autonomy in this novel. Um, we know he was caught up in the excitement of technologies for his age. Remember his bankruptcy over his, his investment in typewriters. Um, but I don't think we should just say that Twain thinks technology doesn't matter. He's very critical of, of Hank, actually. He doesn't actually fully agree with Hank that the context of technology doesn't matter. Um, there, there is a bit of that implication, though, in the novel where he's able to pretty easily set up mines and universities and bicycles and, and all these things. Now, he loses at the end. He fails at the end. But the actual function, the technology works in these contexts, which is really something you have to suspend belief, uh, disbelief on because, you know, how can you have a telegraph without like advanced mining for the wires and, and uh, produce electricity and all these things? It's very, very complex. It's not, uh, it's like supply chains and none of that stuff is really fully exploitatory. Just like, oh, we have factories. Um, but in a way, the fact that the technology kind of works the same is, is kind of a trans-historical look at technology. But at the same time, we don't get the point of view of the peasants. And to the degree we do, they don't seem to see technology in the same way. I mean, the interdex suggests that the church sees this new technology not as a useful progressive device, but as a great evil that has to be eradicated, as do the knights. Um, the introduction of 19th century technologies to the 6th century does seem to promote political and social reforms, though, right? So is, is it technology that leads to the reforms or the reforms that lead to the technology? Twain puts the technology first here. I'm not convinced by any of these things, obviously, right? A soul try and tremble could do this. The infrastructure is the problem. That, that's really my suggestion. Um, now, Twain's obviously having fun with this, and it's more of a social critique, uh, of both his own time and the time of the uh, of the of the early medieval. Um, now, this works best. This book works best as a polemic against slavery and arbitrary hierarchy, whether it's King Arthur or the boss. Um, and where does technology fit into this picture? Um, most clear is how technology was key to the rise of the boss in Camelot in the first place, right? He is able to introduce small technologies at first in order to become a great wizard in England, right? He does it secretly and then rolls out this technocratic republic to replace the medieval monarchy of, of Arthur after, I mean, he has to first, though, also use uh, the revolvers. He runs out of bullets, right? So that's why he, he talks about bluffing. But he, he shoots a bunch of the knights. So he's able to use a small technology to have a big effect, very paralleling like when he kind of dethrones Merlin by basically using a technology. But he rolls out this technocratic republic pretty much with ease. It's presented in the story. It's just three years it takes him to do it. Um, but it includes public schooling, newspapers, industries, modern weapons. 
the boss, our Yankee, uses technology to battle the evils of chivalry, as he sees it, and turn their dominance over to the enslaved peasants, creating a republic. So he's a boss, benefiting himself, enriching himself, becoming wealthy, but using the language of republicanism. He's a Robespierre as well. He's, he's an American boss, like a machinist turned capitalist, but is also eager for this political revolution and uses technology to affect it. But his political revolution is essentially what he learned in civics class, right? He doesn't actually meditate much on, on what republicanism is. It's just, it's good, you know, because that's what I learned in civics class. That's, that seems to be the level we're at. Um, but in the way he is like Robespierre is his eager embrace of violence to affect his, his revolution. Therefore, when he does the tournament, he comes armed only with a lasso and a revolver, kills a dozen knights or so, proves the triumph of technology. Now, that, of course, the Ray Bradbury, is it the Ray Bradbury thing? Arthur C. Clarke? It's, uh, it's wizardry to the observers, obviously. But... Uh, but he, he has to rely on violence. So there's a bit of hypocrisy in the boss over democracy. He's interested in securing his own power. And for all his talk about destroying aristocracy, he doesn't trust the peasants and he kind of creates his own new aristocracy in the hands of this 50 people or so that are trained to accept 19th century values. As I talked about in the first episode of this on this book. It's very much the values of Western imperialism, the civilizing mission and all that. Uh, when describing his battle in the tournament, he thought, quote, ah, it was born of the fact that all the nations knew that this was not a duel between two mighty magicians, a duel not of muscle or mind, not of human skill, but of superhuman art and craft, a final struggle for supremacy between the two master enchanters of the age. He's kind of shifting the terms of the debate to what was most advantageous to an industrial era machinist. Again, not quite a democracy, more like a technocratic meritocracy in his mind. But of course, that's what America is. America was, wasn't then a democracy and it's, it's not now. It's closer to a technocratic meritocracy. Um, but the problem with that is the terms of merit are defined by those in power. Um, so he's able to put 19th century technologies into medieval England while leapfrogging centuries of political and economic developments. Um, it's, that's where you get this kind of trans-historical idea of technology. But where he fails is in actually affecting those political reforms. He can declare it. He declares a republic, but is it a republic? Not really. Um, he mentions that democracy is the only way to remove barbarism from the legal and political system, but it, he doesn't really do that as far as you can see. He just declares it. Um, as far as the boss is concerned, elevating democracy requires bringing along all the 19th century with him, right? A more, uh, like a different approach could have been, let's start with uh, the ideology and the philosophy and then talk about the technology later. But he starts with the technology, right? And so that's where the story ends up. He ends up uh, in a hole with poison gas leaking into his cave and the corpses of 30,000 knights trapping him in. He's literally entrapped by his own technology. So the climax of the story comes with the church's interdict over the boss and his reforms. This act is inspired by his technology, but also by the political reforms and his declaration of a republic. Um, 
He promised to transform Camelot into a republic by replacing the king when he dies with an elected leader, which he sort of does do when Arthur dies. The inner deck leads to his fall. Um, so no matter how easily the technology is able to be placed in this new environment, the political and social transformation the boss is seeking was impossible. Social change actually comes much slower and much more violently than technological revolutions. So it, let's not try to transcend time, but rather the lesson here is uh, that our moral and social values are reflected in the technologies we use. Um, but speaking of violent moments, violent moments of change, uh, that, that kind of is a good way to lead into our next book, which is his love letter to Joan of Arc. Um, it's, it's quite long. It's 400 pages, so we'll take a look at it over four episodes. I don't know how long each episode will be because I haven't yet thought about what I want to say about it, but it's, it's just that. It's a he had a, a historical fascination with, with Joan of Arc as a young woman who achieved things that no other woman of that age had ever achieved. Women have achieved that before, but not of that age. So I'm really looking forward to uh, finishing up this series on the historical romances of Mark Twain with uh, a short series on his novel, what's its full name? Um, the Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. It's, it's also like a frame story, so we get it from the, uh, it's, it's like a lost manuscript kind of thing, like Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Um, but it very much is a, a work of historical fiction based on, the historical evidence that that Twain had around him. So it's, we can kind of look at it as a history book. And I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, uh, thanks for listening to my thoughts about Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Uh, and I'll come uh, shortly with my thoughts on um, the first part of Joan of Arc. See you then. <laughs> Need a